It's Monday, November 26th, 2018. I'm Jeremiah Zimmerman, and this is episode 186 of the 5049 Podcast. How you guys doing? You all right? Thanks for joining us for another conversation between myself and another musician. Today, that musician is piano and keyboard extraordinaire, Brian Marcella. Let's have a listen. Brian plays the shit out of the piano and keyboard, and uh, if you don't already know him, you're going to know him, because we get into it today, and it's a good one. Today on the show, Brian Marcella. Uh, thanks to everyone who uh, reached out or <clears throat> said something nice about the Wendy Eisenberg episode. I really was happy with that one. It was a lot of fun, and uh, it seems like people really liked it. So so thanks for your enthusiasm. I also hope that you all had a, a pleasant Thanksgiving uh, and that, you know, I, I love the holiday season. I actually really like it a lot. I, I, I like the running from thing to thing, seeing people that you haven't seen all year and taking a bit of time to rest. You know, I'm, I'm into it. So I hope you guys had, had a good Thanksgiving. I also want to say thanks to everyone who has signed up for the Patreon. And if you haven't already done it, please consider doing it. Uh, it, it helps. You know, the show is a listener-supported show. So if you if you like the show and you want to give back and say, hey, you know, I dig it, go to patreon.com slash 5049podcast and become a, a monthly donor. It's much appreciated. Today on the show, Brian Marcella. I first became aware of Brian Marcella a while ago, 10 plus years ago. I, I, I encountered him as a member of Ciro Baptista's band, Beat the Donkey. Beat the Donkey, I'm, I, I don't think Beat the Donkey is around anymore necessarily, but it was this sort of continuously evolving madcap show of Ciro Baptista's imagination. Ciro is one of the greats. Uh, and, and, you know, the group would be small, the group would be large, and there was always very performative aspects beyond the music, very sort of theatrical, uh, engaging stuff. And Brian was sort of at the, the, the core of that group, along with drummer Tim Kuyper and, and Chenier. Uh, and then Ciro went on to start a new band called Banquet of the Spirits, uh, which is just that quartet. Ciro, Chenier, Tim, and, and Brian. And something Brian talks about today is that, you know, he was playing with Ciro for a long time before Ciro uh, even realized that he, you know, was a classically trained pianist. He'd only been playing organ and stuff, and I didn't know about that. Thing with Brian, you know, Brian's originally from Philly. He grew up playing the piano. And um, he's definitely been on a pretty singular journey. And in the last... I think year, maybe two years, he's put out two records on Zodic, uh, both in the piano trio format. One record of Masada compositions, um, and then another record of uh, the legendary Hassan. You guys know the legendary Hassan? Um, Zorn really put those together. Uh, I, like John, think 
that what Brian does on the piano, more people should know about it. He's a seriously bad motherfucker on the piano. And there are some dudes out there, you know. There's some cats who who play the piano, the jazz piano, the improvising jazz piano in the in the trio format. And a lot of the people that everyone knows, you know, this is me saying this. This is not Brian. Um, Brian could eat them for breakfast. Uh, and, and he does. That's all I'll say about that. Uh, Brian's a maniac. He put out a record this this last year or two years ago called Imaginarium. We talk about it on the show today, but it's like 40 musicians doing crazy shit, tune to tune. You know, it's like completely different instrumentation and studio approaches. And he's a really excitable, funny, uh, engaging dude. This was the first time we ever talked at any length. You know, we'd met a few times over the years. I think we played once at one of Zorn's improv nights. uh, And I remember it being good. It was a trio with me and Brian Marcella and and Doug Weaselman. And uh, he's just he's just an engaging, fun, interesting guy. He uh, there, there's a complexity to Brian that you know he, he he doesn't he doesn't go around you know broadcasting it. But you just spend a few minutes talking with the guy, and it's very clear that there's a complexity to to his person and to his his uh, his point of view and to his his playing and. I think ultimately as that's what we strive for or should be striving for as musicians. A point of view, a complexity. Um, maybe that's it. Soul. Soul. He's got that. If you want to find out more about Brian Marcella, and I'm saying this to everyone listening, you should. Go to brianmarcella.com. Like I said, he's got a couple of new records out. Um, and I think he's just getting started. He's, you know, he's, he's, he's been at it for a minute and he's done, already done a lot of great shit, but I think, you know, I, 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 I think his, his, uh, his thing is really blossoming. Go to brianmarcella.com. If you enjoy this podcast, go to 5049records.com. Um, check it out. Become a donor. You be, I didn't say this a second ago. You become a donor, you will have access to the entire archive, which is, you know, at this point, 87 episodes. You dig? Trevor Dunn, Joe Morris, Ken Vandermark, Zena Parkins, Jessica Pavone, Matthew Shipp, William Parker. These are some of the people that are in the, Chris Speed, Chess Smith, Jim Black, Charlie Looker. These are some of the people. That, Ellery Escalin. Fuck. Did you guys ever hear that one? That was a good one. These are in the archive. So do that. And that's it. Um, I hope you guys are all doing well. I hope you're you're swinging back into the thing gracefully. And uh, here's my conversation with Brian Marcella. Talk about anything serious or to talk about like death specifically. 
certainly not death, but really kind of anything. Like, I, I think I was a lot for my parents because I thought about everything and I would exhaust them with, like, the ideas and the things that I would bring up. Like, you mean just lots of questions? Just like, yeah, I mean, I was the kind of kid that didn't sleep at night because I'd be pondering metaphysical <laughs> conundrums, oh, you really? know, at like four years old. Oh, yeah. Really? Oh, yeah. Did, um, but what, I mean, do you have brothers and sisters? I have a older sister and a younger brother. Okay. Yeah. It's just, yeah, it's the same configuration we have. There's an old, oh, really? There's the oldest is with my sister, okay. and then my brother, and then me. Okay. So you'd a be girl like, followed by two boys. You'd be like my brother, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, and, but like, you know, I asked you out there about like, if your parents talked about death growing up, because like, I feel like, well, most specifically, my mom would talk about it all the time in a way that in, at the time and in hindsight felt like pretty inappropriate. Wow. Like, just like, cause it was like scary. Cause yeah, it was yeah. always like, oh yeah, you're gonna die. <laughs> Like, it was like beyond pragmatic to the point of like, are you threatening? <laughs> That's funny. Wow. Yeah. I mean, funny in a slightly dark way, but funny. Yeah, totally. But um, but or even like, she used to tell me and my brother when we get in fights, like we get like really intense fights, like beating each other up and mm -hmm. cursing and stuff. And she would say, you know you're going to kill me. This is going to kill me. You're going to have to tell people that you yeah, killed yeah, your yeah. mother. Right. That's, that's, that's pretty out there. Sounds like a mom. Sounds like mom. Uh, yes. Wait, are you from... I thought you were from Philly. Originally, yeah. You grew up in Philly. Uh, yes. The suburbs of Philadelphia. Where? Uh, Bucks County. Oh, yeah. That's you're weird. Are you familiar? Why? Uh, some friends of mine have a country house there. So... You know, there's there's a joke from that people in Bucks County have that if you travel enough, uh -huh. no matter where you go in the world, you'll talk to somebody and somebody will be like, "You're from Bucks County. I have a friend. Right, I have an aunt. I, I have a cousin. Like some everybody has some connection to Bucks County. Yeah, is it huge? It's not huge. You know, it's interesting. There's like uh, there's a there's a town in uh, Bucks County called New Hope. Yeah, that's where Dead Milkmen are from. Uh, and Ween, I think. And, and Ween, yes. Yeah, yeah like Ween. Like Ween's from there. Andy Warhol had a house. Uh, Chan Parker lives there. Really? Um, so Charlie was there a lot. Bill Evans had a steady gig at the at the Canal House there uh, in, in New Hope. It had... It's kind of like this thriving little kind of artistic hippie yeah. scene. And there were a lot of people from New York that moved. There was like kind of what the Hudson Valley, you know, right. it's like now that's what that's what New Hope was in the 60s, where people that wanted to leave New York kind of went down there. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, quite honestly, I know New Hope mostly through the work of the dead Milkman and Ween. And, we, and the sure. picture they paint isn't so hip. You know, they, they sort of paint it as like a dreary... Well, it's... I mean, look, like anybody... like I mean, I actually don't know where you grew up, but any, I feel like anybody that grew up in the suburbs yeah. of a city in the United States has a similar... It's like funny. Yeah. I mean, like I mean, like Ween. You know, like Ween is like every friend. Like you know, like I mean, those guys were like every Everybody every friend I knew. Yeah, in like high school. Yeah, I'm sure it was probably a lot of you know, like you know what you know what Trevor and Trey had. You know, sure. in like Northern California, yeah. it's like a very similar. <laughs> Like this, just, just, just want to get the fuck out. Dystopia, yeah, right. you know, like and. <laughs> but I always wonder, like, well, wait, wait, wait. One thing, just very quickly about Bucks County is, yeah. uh, are we recording? By the way, yeah, we're going. Oh, okay. Uh, in it, it, a lot of gay men, 
mm-hmm. have homes in Bucks County. Yes. So I feel like uh, because of that contingent, if you are a, a, a What's the racist word people use now? A cosmopolitan? <laughs> if you're like a cosmopolitan person, uh, you know, and you are going from, like, I'm going from New York to Paris to that, wherever it is you go. Yeah. You're more likely to know someone in Bucks County because gay people go to cities. That is certainly true. Well, it's, it's interesting, too, though, you know, in a way, because Bucks County is like a lot of, you know, rural Pennsylvania, which is Republican, you know. Pennsylvania it's, it's, weird. It's all red, you know. Yeah. It's like... You know, if you're outside the city, you're outside of Philly, or if you're outside of P- 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 Pittsburgh, I mean, even in uh, Pittsburgh, it's mixed, but like in the city itself, but you go a little bit out and it's all Republican, you know, so. And, like Amish and all kinds of weird shit. Oh, there's that. I mean, I don't mean to say that's weird shit, but. <laughs> well, there's that pretty too. Weird <laughs> I mean, there's, there's that too. But, so. Yeah. Growing up in Pennsylvania, like you grew up like outside of Philly. Yeah, I was born in the in 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 I was born in the city in the northeast city of Philadelphia. Yeah, the Jewish part of yeah. um, of uh, Philly, and uh, and then I was like two when uh, my parents moved out to the suburbs. Yeah, in what town in Bucks County? Uh, originally, we moved to Warrington, uh-huh. um, which actually is in Montgomery County. Uh-huh. Um, it's like right on the uh, border. Yeah. There's like uh, the County Line Road, and if you're one side of County Line Road, you're in Bucks. The other side, you're in Montgomery County. Right. And then uh, I was in the middle of third grade, moved to Churchville. Okay. Um, that's hard to move in the middle of a school year in third grade. Yeah. I did it in sixth grade, I think. Well, it's even harder, probably. It, it, was, diff- it was very difficult. Because kids are starting to get meaner. They were really mean. <laughs> yeah, when did they start? They start getting mean around fourth, fifth grade? I... I you know what was really in, like interesting for me to see was that you know we didn't even move that far like we moved like maybe 20 like 20 minutes okay like uh like where we moved but the but the economic disparity in the 20 minutes was so large you went to you guys moved up or down we moved into a much more affluent area yeah. but we were kind of like the poor people and like this really and even in third grade I saw what a difference it made, and it made a difference in kind of like, um, kind of the pseudo like worldliness. Like kids seemed with money to grow up faster in a way. Yeah, city kids are weird like that. It was like you know, it's like I was in third grade and kids were still kids. You know, mm-hmm. we were still playing, and then all of a sudden, there's like you know, there's kids in third grade dating and going on dates and stuff. My mind was kind of blown. I was that, like, whoa, yeah. third grade in third That's grade. A little creepy. It was a little creepy. Yeah. Um, Pucks County has that creepiness. Yeah, I wonder. I, I love that. Dark, I actually love that dark side of the suburbs. Yeah, you know the white picket fences and what's like, like going on in those. Kinda, oh man, that's yeah. like my hero. Yeah, you know? yeah he's like, the guy. He's the guy. I mean, I, I identified so much with that. You know, when Twin Peaks came out, I was how old are you? Thirteen. I'm forty two. Yeah, yeah. So like, you know, I was yeah, I was a teenager, like fourteen or like nineteen ninety. I was four. Scary four, shit. Four, 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 it was scary, but it was like it, so good. It wasn't even the, it's kind of scary for like me. It was like finally somebody's telling like you know like the like thoughts that are going on that like in my head, like what's going on in my high school. But you know, <laughs> I was I'm 38. And I mean, we, my, me, my brother, my sister, and I were obsessed with Twin Peaks. Okay, uh, and I, you know. When I think back to like my response to it, it was like, yeah, there's like really lush music and these yeah. really scary images and these quirky lines like all smashed up together. Right. And like that's kind of like that's just what it is. It's kind of amazing because my sister was the one that got me into it originally. Uh-huh. She's old, older. 
And I, we probably have like a similar story. Like my brother, who was he was probably nine at the time. Uh-huh. He was obsessed and wanted to watch, but he was like terrified. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I can't believe like we actually allowed him to watch. I think he slept on my on my floor, in my bedroom for like a year. Like it's straight, so funny. It's like, but you know, I still get freaked out when I see that image of Bob at the oh man the foot of the bed. Of course. But I wonder if I'd be as freaked out if I didn't get originally freaked out at, at age nine by it. Uh, po- it's uh, yeah, it's hard to say. I mean, obviously, we can't know that. But it's a pretty fucking scary image. There's so many scary images. I mean, who knew that a like a that a ceiling fan it could, could be so horrifying? Could be the, the scariest thing you've ever seen. You know, you know there's funny. Uh, you're absolutely right about that. And are you a fan of Wild at Heart? Mm-hmm. There's this shot in Wild at Heart uh, uh, when Harry Dean Stanton's going down to New Orleans and he's approaching, and they're flashing to like the different creepy people that are down there. And right. Yeah. Shot from this, like it's the ceiling with these uh, like ribbons hanging from it. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's one of the most horrifying things I've ever seen. Right. Which is amazing that he can do that. Yeah. Um, it's weird. Pennsylvania is like only a few other places like California in that from one end of the state to the other, it's like a different universe. Oh, yeah. Yeah, definitely. Like you can go to like Pittsburgh, like Steubenville, like around there. Yeah. And see where like the American dream was murdered. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, you know, I had it. I had it. Uh, I had an ex who... Her mother and her family was from, like, the Altoona-Johnstown area. Uh And that was, like, yeah, I mean, you know, you're seeing, you know, you're seeing, you're seeing that middle America that was lost. Like, these once thriving small mountain, you know, steel steel oil towns that, you know, are just... Forever lost. No, just, you know, they're in, like, a, like, a opioid daze, you know, and just, uh, just zombies. Yeah. It's so depressing, and... And like hearing the stories of what they were like in the fifties and sixties, oh. it was like they were mini metropolises, and there yeah. was like culture there, and yeah. and just what happened. And uh, it's you know it's it's very sad. And I think like people that you know live in cities and and haven't experienced. I mean, like I had you know like uh, I had the pleasure being uh, in a band uh, with Tim Craig Kuiper and Tim Kuiper, yeah. John Lee and John Buck. Did were, I beat the donkey? We, no, we well, this is before uh, that even, but we were all friends. Um, met at the new school with this band, Caveman. And, oh, uh, yeah. And we used to, I mean, we were, you know, we did grassroots touring in a van for, you know, we'd play in 150 shows a year for like two, three years. All those towns. Yeah. <laughs> you know, all the upstate New York towns, all little America towns. I got to see so much of that. And I think it's... It was a really great experience to have and to see what it's really like, you know. Was it your first encounter with that stuff? Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, in I mean, in that way, like really interacting, you know. I mean, I've, uh, you know, I I can't say where I grew 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 up is the same because I think a suburb, you know, yeah. like a middle class suburb of a city is a totally different environment than these, you know. One cities that are basically, you know, apocalyptic, you know, post-apocalyptic kind of realities now. But when you were growing up, did you, Philadelphia was the city to you? Yes. And New York was? New York is, well, New York was always where I wanted to be. (laughs) Well, you know, like Philly was different, like growing up, because Philly was like, you know, Philly was, it was like Newark. It was like any of the cities that were destroyed by riots, you know? It was like, it, it was... There was no reason, really, other than to go to the jam at Ortlieb's. That's the jazz uh, club. That was that was the jazz club. It's not there anymore. 
No, I mean, there's in, in name there there is an or uh, an or leaves, but like you know, like um, that part of, Phil- of Philadelphia was the part that really went through the gentrification. Is that South Philly? Uh, North, North Philly, North Philly, right? Um, you know, and it's very br- 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 Brooklyn uh, there now, and it's like any you know thing. So like as it got. You know, as it got better, um, everything was lost. Every everything was lost, and you know the building was eventually sold. They made condos, and they kept the guy that owned the club for. I mean, he owned the club forever. Um, you know, he sold it, and then uh, it closed for a while, and then somebody reopened it with the same name. But it's not. They've remodeled. It lost they just, its charm. They just it's kept not the a name. Ja- yeah. They yeah. just kept the name. It's not a jazz club They're anymore. They're no using scene. the name. Yeah. You know, um, I've been thinking about that a lot lately about what you know with the conversation of gentrification which can often be a pretty boring conversation sure because most people i don't think really look at you know in the most of those conversations don't really look at all the implications and and the factors and the results but having had that conversation because i've lived in new york for like 20 years now almost Mm mm-hmm you have that conversation all the time i've always kind of been like for at least like a devil's advocate of like well let's look at the positive side of it. Like you have access to good food and less access to being stabbed. Like, you know, let's not pretend like that's not a plus, of course, you know, and obviously where it gets extreme is where cities completely begin to lose their like sense of continuity. Mm-hmm. So I was just, I was in Paris last week. Right. I'm walking the streets and I'm just like, Oh yeah, this was that thing that I originally loved so much about New York. It's like, it's not just that something's old. It's that there is, a through line. You don't just smash it out of the way and then put something else there. Right. You know, and that could present itself many different ways. Like if you go to the Village Vanguard, it's like, yeah, it's kind of a tourist trap, but you're also, if you're on stage, making music on the same stage that fucking Coltrane played on. You know, it's so funny. I have um, I have a student. She's uh, 16. Um, and uh, so I have uh, one of my groups, one of the <laughs> too many groups to name that I perform with is a quintet called The Flail. Uh-huh. And we've been together now for 17 years. We just uh, had amazing. Our, as a quintet playing original jazz is kind of insane. But, you know, again, we were friends uh, that met at school uh, in New York here. And uh, we just had a weekend that we played at Smalls. And uh, my student came up from, uh, she lives in, in the Trenton area. And she came up with her mom, uh, you know, to see to see us play. And yesterday, so we played Friday, Saturday. She came up Saturday night. Ye- yesterday we had a lesson, and she was like, "I just wanted to ask, you know, um, as we walked by Smalls, we walked by this place, the Village Vanguard." She said, "Is that the Village Vanguard?" She's like, "You know, yeah. where my favorite Bill Evans, Ali yeah, Almost yeah, yeah. Cry said, that's the same Vanguard." And like her eyes like lit up, like exactly what you were saying. Yeah. And she kind of asked me. I said, "You know, it's amazing to be on that stage and to play there and be part of yeah. this." And she was yeah. just amazed that it's the same place, same owners. You know, right. Um, I don't like living in a world where things just get knocked over and replaced with something that has nothing to do with what is around it. You know, and I remember, you know, it was so exciting when I first moved to the Lower East Side, which I didn't think was that long ago, but the way they're restructuring everything, it was a million years ago. Right. And there were Hebrew signs next to Spanish signs next to Chinese signs, and just like you, you know, I've told this story a lot. There's a, a friend of mine who lives in this building who's my mom's age. Uh, I met him originally when I worked at Russ and Daughters, the store. Right. And he'd been, eat, you know, he moved from the, he's a black man from the Bronx who moved to the Lower East Side in the 70s when it was junkies only. 
you know, moved down right, here, yeah. and he started going to Russ and Daughters, not because he would crave smoked fish and fucking dried fruit, but because it was one of the only places with lights on being run by people who were like welcoming. So he was like, oh, that's like where I guess I'll start eating food now. Right. You know, and that there's something like very natural and like that's where you actually have cultures exchanging with one another. Sure. You know? Yeah. So now that it's being replaced by like poke bowl chains, you know, it's just like, who's this for? I don't get it. Yeah. Sorry to... No, it's, you know, it's kind of an interesting thing. I remember it was like, uh, I don't know, was this a month or two ago, I was out with, uh, you know, I was out with Zorn and uh, who was with us? Uh, Jay, uh, Jay Campbell. The best. Yes. Was w- with us. And, uh, and we, you know, and I think, I forget how it came up about like this changing like New York and like Jay was asking him, you know, it's like, like how, like how he feels about it now. How, like how John, like, is this like, a totally different new uh-huh. like New York than you've known, and John was like, I mean, you know, he's always you know very straight about things. He said, you know, it's always been changing. Right, that's exactly right. He's like, I don't feel that. He's like, because since I've been here, it's it's always changed. You know, he's he, like, there are certain things, yes, that that remain, but like the, the the majority of everything has always been in a state of flux and a state of change. He's always said that, and he's, yeah. it's true. And I realized that for myself one day when I was in Times Square, I was walking around, I was getting frustrated trying to like navigate the streets through all these tourists and stuff. Yeah, and I realized, oh, this is New York. You know, this <laughs> right. is New York. It's like yeah. this place that things people are just constantly passing through. You know, right. But he's also in a little bit. Like, he's in a bit of denial about it too. You think? Yeah, because <laughs> yeah. he. Yeah, he says, and he's right. Philosophically, yeah. he's one hundred percent right. Right. And for one's personal health, he's absolutely right because you have to accept change at all times. Otherwise, right. you know. That being said, if you spend any time with him, you're like, hey, let's go into Shake Shack. He's like, I'm not going into that fucking bullshit. You know? <laughs> right, yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's just like he does. Ha- you know? Right. Yeah. Yeah. Sure. <laughs> You know, he's uh, he he. I think because I was just talking about this with someone the other day, and we'll talk about music. I swear, <laughs> it's okay. But uh, we don't have we don't to. Have to. <laughs> but he, you know, John doesn't have any kids, right? And I do think that he does have a very paternal side. Mm-hmm. And when he Without looks question. around and sees so many of us sort of like freaking out about the state of the world, the state of our lives, I think he feels a sense of responsibility to be a positive voice. Definitely. You know. No, I. Uh, that's. Very, that's very astute. I would agree with that. Yeah. Yeah. So did you just get back from Sarajevo with him? Yes. How was that? It was intense. It yeah. Was, uh, it was an intense one. Yeah, we were in Sarajevo and then uh, Vienna. Uh-huh. Uh, it was kind of like um, we did, uh, this was, uh, you know, Masada book three. This was, I think, the first the first marathon, the first time that we've presented the music. Um you know, outside of the United States, I think. Really, I, I believe. I think so. Yeah, because we did. Uh, we did a thing at Symphony Space was uh, last year. Mm-hmm. That was with uh, three, three, three bands. Mm-hmm. Uh, right, it was Ban- Ban- Banquet of the Spirits. Zion Which 80. you play in? You play at Banquet. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and Zion Eighty and Secret Chiefs. Uh, right, you know, were um, were on were on that bill. But this was this was much this was much uh, a larger thing. Right. Uh, not, not Gnostic Trio was there. They're amazing. Yes, unbelievable. The duo with uh, with Julian and Guy Guy Guyan was there. Uh-huh. Sophia Ray, 
Klezmerson from uh, so I think it was a lot of the bands from the from, from the box set right yep this guy right I was like right there yeah. you got it. yep um, so we did that we did we did a Cobra oh wow which is always is so much fun yeah um, uh, and then uh, yeah and then some of the bands went to Den Bosch uh-huh. and then some went to Vienna and uh, continued it and then I uh, mean, got I, back so wait so. You've been playing with Ciro Baptista for a long time. Yes, I think the first time I played with Ciro was 2003. Really? Mm-hmm. How did you get involved with him originally? So, let's see. Um, so, I was in that band with Tim Kuyper. And you guys met at the new school? Uh, you know, we met, like, Tim was there for a very short time. Uh-huh. Um, but I, you, you, know, you did a full... Uh... I, I didn't do a full thing, because I, I was studying classical piano before that, so I kind of... I studied at Juilliard and Peabody. Those aren't bad schools. Not bad. Um, <laughs> and the new school's not, like, not bad either. But yeah, so I wound up getting my degree from the new school in jazz. But I was there for about, I was like, I was there for two some, uh, for two years. But I took like a little bit of time off because I got conned by a, by like an impersonator, if you could imagine. What? Like an imposter in Philadelphia who was... Uh, posing as like uh one of the original singers of this motown band that El- like the elgins it's a very long whoa, and a very, whoa, 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 it's a very whoa, whoa, long and a very wait, dark story wait, wait you gotta tell this story so what, let's stop we're gonna step back a little bit further you're playing classical piano as a kid in the suburbs you say i'm gonna devote my life to this shit and go to juilliard it's a little bit more mixed than that because my dad's a jazz musician i actually learned to play I, I i taught myself to play by ear first okay and improvised i played i mean it was I was playing music before I before I walked and talked. It's the first thing that I remember. And I remember how I taught myself to play uh-huh. to play music. Um, but then, you know, I've been playing for a few years. My te- my parents were actually trying to find me a teacher, and you know, it, in the suburbs, then it was hard to find somebody that was going to teach a three year old. Um, so it was five when they found a teacher, and I started studying piano. Then learning how to read music. But prior to age five, you were already hitting the keys. Yeah, I could. I mean, I could play most things that I heard by ear. You heard the relationship between the the keys. Oh yeah, yeah, um, yeah. And I remember. You know, it's so funny. Like, uh, I love to tell this story because you know, people. You know, I guess you you start doing anything that that young and you know names start getting attached to you in these words like talent. You know, and yeah, different yeah, things. Yeah. And, but I can remember. I remember specifically how hard it was for me to actually learn certain things. Like, I remember one of the first things that really blew my mind and frustrated me um, in music was that I realized that, you know, if... I Obviously, I didn't know the word for an interval then, mm-hmm. but I could tell that if, like, the space between the the p- p- pitches was large, I could hear if it went up or down. But if it got a little bit closer, I couldn't even hear... Couldn't hear the difference. I couldn't hear the difference between up and down. And I thought there was something really wrong with me. I got so frustrated. And, like, I remember even, like, I remember sort of an epiphany that I had and what changed my ability to hear, which uh, is crazy, like, at three that I figured the, 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 this out. But what, okay. I, but what I realized was, was that, well, this is a story, too, because, like, I, I was two, I was two and a half, was playing with matchbox cars in my kitchen, rolled one underneath uh, the door that went to our basement, opened the door, went to grab it, rolled all the way down the stairs. We had a concrete floor, hit the floor, knocked myself out, 
wound up in the hospital. When I came back, my parents said two things. I started stuttering, which I didn't before that, and I started playing music. What? Yeah, so like... Um, what? <laughs> yeah. But what I realized, why it was hard for me when pitches got closer, was that I had such... My mind was going so fast that I always had this monologue that was so loud in my own head that I couldn't actually hear what was going on because what was going on in my own head... It was distracting you. ...was distracting me. So, like, even though I didn't know it, I had to learn how to meditate and quiet my own internal thing so I could concentrate on what I was hearing. And then I said, wow, if you concentrate, you can hear this. This isn't so hard. But, you know, there were so many things along the way that were really difficult for, like, me that if I was 8 or 9 or 15 and decided to play music and had those issues... You know, people around me, myself, would have said, hey, you know what, it might not be your thing. You know, you might not be so talented. Really? But nobody expects a two-year-old to be able to do those things to begin with. Uh-huh. And for me, it really, like, my mind was kind of blown. Because when you learn music, the same time you learn words, sounds, colors, shapes, there's no difference. Mm-hmm. Like, it blew my mind that my parents, like, thought it was some great thing that, you know, it could you know, play a C and hear and say that C. I'm like, man, if you show if you show me blue and I say blue, like I <laughs> I, I don't get any praise, you know, like it kind of it's like this is strange. Yeah. So I always had um I've had this weird relationship my whole life when people use words like talent. I said, you know, there can be certain I said, there's a few things. Like I I'm, I'm stubborn, uh-huh. <laughs> I'm headstrong. Uh-huh. And I also knew I knew why I wanted to learn music. Um, you know, like my dad, my dad was, at that point, he was an amateur musician, but he played all the wood, 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 woodwinds. He played flute. Really? Clarinet, Barry, tenor, alto, soprano. He played vibes, which were my favorite. So we, he didn't make a living. It was just, he, he liked didn't, to play. No, he had, you know, he had, um, he had a, a big band that he played and arranged for, which is ironic. This was like late 60s in Philadelphia. That was his way of paying to go to college, to get Playing a degree gigs. in psychology. Yeah. So, you know, it blows my dad's mind. It's like, man, I made as much money playing in like a 13-piece band in 69 yeah. that you make now, you know? And it's like... <laughs> but like, what's the irony, you know, that he's playing jazz to put himself through college? That is you know? fucking crazy. Right? I mean, I was just telling the joke to someone the other day. This is a non-musician. I told them the joke about... um you know the jazz musician who wins the lottery and they <laughs> yeah. say what are you gonna do with the money he says you know just keep playing gigs till the money runs out <laughs> yeah exactly and they were like that's the darkest thing i've ever heard but, but oh but just but just to finish yeah. this story so like so so my dad was um so my dad though played a lot of music like my dad's two i think main loves at that point in life were sports which he played semi-pro baseball, baseball? and football really yeah and jazz <laughs> pretty talented guy my dad's my dad's an amazing guy um but he was also a vet um he was a, ca- a captain in the marines in v- vietnam which i never knew this guy should write a book oh man I, I, I might i might have to do it for him i don't know my dad's gonna write a, a book but um i go into history i i i, I kid everybody i said my dad's like kind of the real like far first gone yeah. like, if we wanted to talk the whole time about my dad i could tell you about my dad's story is crazy but anyway was he from uh, philly from Philly, Philly. Okay. he was from uh, South Philly. So my mom is Jewish from North Philly. My dad Italian, South Philly, Rocky style. Fucking <laughs> yeah. the Knicks, yeah. right? So, um, 
but anyway, so um, you know, like like so like so many vets, you know, of Vietnam, they were not able to talk about their experiences. Right. And growing up, I never, I think, and I, you know, this is something I wasn't really aware of, like how many children of um, of people that fought in that war didn't know, like, even if, you know, our parents or mothers or fathers saw combat. It's like, because it wasn't, so many of them couldn't even talk about it. Mm -hmm. Like, like my dad, I didn't know anything till I was 18 year, years old. Um, about what he even went through, and you approached him to ask about it, or uh, that's kind of another story. You know, there was uh, you. Re uh, you remember this mo movie, A Thin Red Line? Yeah, the uh, Terrence Malick film. Yeah. yeah. So I saw that with like my dad, and after we got home, he broke down. It was the first time, and it was interesting with all the war movies and everything that you know had come out. It was that movie and that time that he was able then to start to talk about things and it kind of, it put a lot of things and, and a lot of things started to make sense. But getting back to my dad playing music though, you know, I could, I wouldn't have been able, obviously at three years old or four years old to verbalize that I thought, you know, obviously my dad experienced some sort of trauma uh -huh. and that he wasn't the same person ultimately that he was like in his heart, but kind of in a way, like it was like, a, I mean, as a kid, you know, growing up, you know, I was born in 76, so like Star Wars to me, you know, like as a kid, it was like huge. Uh -huh. So there's a part of me that always could identify with like, there's something in my dad that's like, I know is there that's not there. But when he played music, like, it was crazy. I knew exactly who, who my dad was. Hmm. Like his heart, his spirit came completely through his like music, which was completely lost in his interactions with us and his interactions with my mom. And that never left me. And I said, I have to learn that language because if I do, I'll never be misunderstood. Jesus Christ. Yeah. So I don't believe in talent, but I believe in this perfect storm in a sense of things that allowed me, you know, that pushed me through yeah. to learn many things that were not easy for like me, you know, music, right. a lot of certain aspects of music came easily to me. I also feel like, I don't know if I had like past life like feelings but intuitively even when i was really young learning i i remember distinctly being so frustrated that i couldn't do things faster because part of me knew that i already knew how to do it huh like you've already learned this right like because as soon as anything sort of came back to me i immediately it was like a memory oh yeah this makes sense <laughs> like harmony all these things it's like oh yeah you know all of this so it was really weird that I was frustrated that things took so long that I felt like I already could do or did. Yeah, um, like you're ahead of yourself. Sort of. But I wonder if, um, when you think back on it, uh, I mean, did you did you and your dad do music together as a kid? Yeah, it was something that he loved to do. It, it really actually frustrated me. Um, because as I got older, you know, I, I was... <laughs> It's so funny. I feel like I'm living my life in reverse. Like I was a grumpy old man, you know, as a uh -huh. kid. Yeah, I, was, yeah, yeah. I was serious, man. I was like, you know, I wore suits. Like I was the whole, you know, I was like ready to be, I was very much an adult, like wanted to be an adult from the very like beginning of life. And, and, you know, once I started studying classical piano when I was five, 
it's just that discipline and I was naturally really hard on myself so when my dad just wanted to jam he's like you know it's so funny like my dad's like you know some of his favorite music was Stan Getz you know playing yeah. jo- with playing Joe Beam you know so it was like um, I remember learning bossa novas, you know, like maybe before anything. Really? Which was interesting to get back to zero. zero yeah. This is kind of like a perfect, like, so, like Do this I- is like a segue that's perfect in a way. And and we had like a Kimball organ. I, re- I remember like these, you remember these electric, they were like electric home organs. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You had like uh, rhythms, you know. And yeah, 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 and, yeah. And I remember my favorite one. The bossa nova? Samba. Well, you, samba. You, you flipped one. You had the bossa nova. You, uh-huh. you you toggled it the other way. You had the samba. Yeah, and that was my favorite. I had no idea that it was like Quika and different things that I was listening that I loved. But it was like this is the one that you know. It's so funny, actually. You say that because, I mean, you just made me think that like I we had keyboards growing up, like really cheap keyboards. Yeah, but yeah. when you would toggle between the different rhythms, like because of being around those cheap Casio keyboards. Right. Like, I knew early on Cumbia. <laughs> yeah. Right. Tejano. Uh-huh. <laughs> Samba, Bossa Nova, uh, Merengue, and Salsa. Of course. Yeah. Yeah. I, mean, I don't that- like any of that music. <laughs> <laughs> but all those rhythms were there. Waltz. So, yeah. So, okay. So now let's, you know, let's go 25 something years into the future or whatever it is. So then I'm playing in this band with Tim Kuiper, who at that point was already playing in Beat the Donkey. Uh huh. Ciro um, Baptista's band for many years. Yes, and um, and they had uh, they had a gig at Macor. Um, yeah, that's not, is that still there? You remember? I don't think it's still there. Okay, forgot about Macor. But yeah, this was like 2003, I think, and uh, 2003, 2004, uh, 2003, and uh, and at that point, you, you, I mean, I'm sure that you know, like that band. There were somewhat regular members, but there were so many people that went coming and going. That would yeah. go, that would go in and out. And they had people that sometimes would perform. And around that time, Peter Affelbaum um, was in the band, and he was playing. You know, he he was playing mainly sax and melodica, but there was never a bass player in Beat the Donkey. That was part of what kind of made that band kind of what it was because all the low sturdy drums kind of took the rate that was know, a, a compositional consideration on zero's behalf to not have a bass player yeah because like well i mean when you have that many low drums yeah playing what the bass would be playing yeah it would be so it's so hard to would even hear like a bass you wouldn't get the definition of the pitches right <laughs> over those drums right and it wasn't kind of maybe a necessary thing initially um because the band also evolved too, and in the beginning it was much more just percussion and theater and dance. You know, like the musical aspect really started to develop, but the only instrumentalist before Peter, Peter Affelbaum in the band uh, was Viva Di Concini, who was the guitarist. Okay. Um, so, it, you know, there wasn't the musical aspect started to really develop, I think, when Peter kind of came in, you know, like came into the band and he started playing organ bass. Uh-huh. Um, so at that point, like that role in the in the band, so to speak, was kind of like melodica organ bass. And, you know, you play a little bit of sax and he couldn't do this gig at 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 McCor. And uh, so I guess Tim told Ciro about me. He's like, I, you know, I know this guy who could probably come and do the show. You know, and uh, we didn't have a chance to rehearse like before with the with the band. I'd seen Beat the Donkey play uh, a number of times before before I did the gig, but I'd never even met Ciro mm-hmm. um, at that point. 
and Tim met with me, just him and me, and he taught me the whole show. Because at that point, it was a show, you know? It wasn't right. so much we're playing songs. Tap dancing. There was and... tap dance, but everything was choreographed and everything moved. You know, everything had an order and this happens here. It wasn't just like learn the songs. Right. You know, it's like this drum fill's going to lead to this. And then, this, you know, it was like a lot of knowing, yeah. having to learn the show and what the show actually was. Um, and they, we, we had this big Coca-Cola gong um, like these, I don't know if you remember those from the thirties, these huge, like they were like, uh, huge metal Coca-Cola signs that look like you can play as a gong. It looks like a gong. It's like, you know, it looked like the cap from the bottle or no, it's just like, th- well, yeah, sort of, but it's like three feet and they like metal. It's like a gong, okay. like basically, but yeah. they use, but it was a lot of what they had for advertising. Um, okay. So there was a role like, you know, like that was a role that I had to do it. And like part of it is like, you're, you know, you're rolling it across the stage. It's like you're playing this stuff. And for me, that was a new, I had played plenty of music, you know, uh-huh. studying jazz and stuff, but I never, I wasn't really so much into theater or, you know, the circus or having, or having. Was it uncomfortable for you? Well, the edges were really sharp. So one, I was worried about like like completely cutting my hand up or like rolling it and letting it go and having it fly off the stage and decapitate somebody. I, I mean, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I certainly had fears outside of, you know, just playing this rhythm, which, okay, this is not hard. Right? I'm spitting this thing and having to move around the stage and not trip, rip, 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 rip over, you know, wires and things and all that. But anyway, so Tim taught me the whole show, um, went and played the show. You know, we're all in costumes. Oh, I wore... I mean, this was the thing, too. You know, the whole thing about that band, these outlet... Like, you know, we were dressed crazy. The big explosion of color. Uh, or anything. And it yeah. kind of became a little more of a freak show. But I wore, like, a nightie. And Sarah loved that. That I came out of, like, women's la- la- lingerie. <laughs> like, having never met him, you know? It's like, all right, this he understands the band. And, right. And, you know, and Sarah said to me afterwards, man, you're the first person to come in this band and play the whole show and not make one, like, one mistake. So he was uh, like, you're in. And that was kind of it. And, you know, and I was kind of the beginning. And then that's how, you know, our relationship developed. And I, you know, he didn't even know I played piano because I literally just did what Peter did. So maybe he thought I could just play a little bass and like melodica. Yeah. And I remember this was like a year later. Um, Jazz at Lincoln Center just opened Dizzy's, and and they asked Sarah to do a week. Well, I think this was maybe the first week or one of the first weeks. Uh-huh. He was one of the first artists that they asked to do a week at uh, Dizzy's, and I remember Sarah calling me up, like super worried. He's like, "Man, we got offered to play at Jazz at Lincoln Center." Now consider, like, I'm a jazz pants degree at the New School. Right? This is, I've never had a gig like this. A chance to play at Dizzy's for a week. I was so excited. He was so worried. He's like, I, you know, he's like, it's a jazz club. He's like, I don't know what we're going to do. Can, 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 can we do this? What are we going to do? I said, Ciro, I'm a jazz pianist. And he blew his, he didn't even know. I said, I have songs that we can do. This is amazing. You know, I said, we can definitely like uh, do yeah. this. And that's when stuff like really changed because I played, you know, pia- we added piano then to the show. Yeah. Like, uh, like after that, but it's like, he didn't even know. And it was because I didn't need to do it in the band. But Ciro, you know, Ciro's like one of those gen- like genius band leaders that always works. He incorporates what you do. He wants to know what you do because it's like that's then what we do. Yeah. He wants to like, you know, like what is it that you do? When we formed a ban- banquet of the, of the spirits, it was the same way. You know, it's like, oh, Chenier, he plays Oud, he plays Gimbri, you know? Uh-huh. Like these are all parts of like the band then, you know? Yeah. Tim was playing Angoni at that point. So it was like, you know, Ciro 
that's all that he's about. He just wants to incorporate. Right. But it was like, I didn't feel the need to tell him because it's like, this was his band. I was doing what I was asked to do. Yeah. Um, and then he's like, man, you play piano. <laughs> I was like, yes. Yeah, Dude, Ciro is the best. Yeah, he's... He's like, honestly, one of the deepest guys around. And I've never had a conversation. We've only had a few conversations. I've never had a conversation with him that wasn't hilarious, but also like really insightful where like these nuggets stick with me as something that like I come back to all the time. You know, it's like, um, I, I couldn't say enough good things about Ciro. Um, I mean, he's, you know, become one, I mean, other than a mentor, you know, a, a dear friend, certainly one of an, a neighbor now, you know, we're neighbors. Really? But it's like, yeah. I mean, yeah. you know, we live 10, 10 minutes uh, like apart. We both moved at the same time, bought houses within like a few months of each other. Uh-huh. Um, but it's just been, I mean, obviously between Beat the Donkey and Ban- Banquet of the Spirits over the last, you know, 14 years or whatever it's been now, it's been an amazing journey with Ciro. And it's just, yeah. Uh, I feel, I mean, the same way. I mean, it's why Ciro makes everything better. That's, you know, it's the best way that I can say it. He, just he does. He makes life better. <laughs> yeah. There's a reason so many people add him to their groups. It's because whatever you do will be better. <laughs> That's exactly it. And you're going to feel better. The people in the audience are going to feel better. The environment. He's all about that. You he know? will push the bandstand. He talk. He just talks about the, Lift he, the bandstand. He, he transform. Well, he transforms the energy. You know. Yeah. Um. Uh. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But I, it's funny you say that. Like about whatever the people in the band are able to do or what it is that they do do is that he says, okay, this is part of the band now. In a way, it's sort of like makes the identity of the group like clearer and like way less clear, you know? Like I, I listened to the first Banquet of the Spirits record and sure. I was like, this is this crazy fucking record. Like I, what does this band sound like live? Right. And it is live music, but then I listened to like the Masada record the from the, the new this one. That second one, yeah. And it's like, it's totally the same different. band, but it's like totally different. Right. Well, you know, and there's, I mean, there's some reasons for that too. Um, part of that was uh, Zorn. Yeah. Um, and I could spec. There's things that I know and that I could say, and things that I could speculate. Sure. But you know, I think our first idea for this album was a little bit more to do like the first the album. Yeah. But you know. There's something, and, and I understand this. You know, it's it's funny. What Banquet of the Spirits... Sorry, construction. No, it's okay. What Banquet of the Spirits, you know, does is kind of like Zorn's world when he thinks of what a Masada marathon is. Right. All the groups are very different. He needs those groups to be different so that the arc of the entire show has all these elements mm-hmm. banquet of the spirits did that in a micro like we were one band doing that would go from yeah. surf to world to exotica right. to you know to everything so yeah. we did that within ourselves it's that's not really needed when you're one band in a, like a 20 30 minute set within this four hour show one right i think is one thing um and then two, and like maybe it's this too, is that, you know, when you're traveling a lot, if we were going to do the music, like we never actually did, um, you know, we never did like a full tour just playing the music, I think, of the book two album. Right. Of Hakaim. And if we did, it would have been really difficult to travel with that because of everything that we, Synths and that we were doing and, and all that yeah. that was required. And, and also the, just the, you know, the insane amount of overdubs, obviously, that right. we did to orchestrate to make that album right um 
Like, I love that. I come from that world, too. Yeah. You know? Um, but then then there's the, the realism now about we have to travel and play this music, and how's that going to happen? Right. And, you know, and even with the first album that we did, there's a lot of that, you know, where Shanir and I, like, constantly flip, like, bass roll parts. He, you know, in the mid, mid, middle of a song, he'll play oud, and I'll go to bass. Mm-hmm. And then he goes to bass and I go to Oregon or, or something mm-hmm. else, you know? So there's a lot of this flipping and it took us a lot of time to really work all of that out too. Mm-hmm. And I just think at this point um, in what's going on that like, you know, Zorn, you know, he's like, he thought about like the, well, originally, you know, 10, 10 ensembles. And then obviously there was the bonus disc right. with uh, Craig and uh, v- Vadim. Yeah. Um, which is amazing. Um but I think that his idea was he knew that what role in the context of a marathon all those bands were. Yeah. Were, it's all very different and it works very well together. Yeah. So it's like, you know, because our first attempt actually that we were going to do, we did some very rough dead demos of like two or three tracks and sent them to, to like Zorin. And Zorin's like, no. Like have Shanir play bass, have Brian play piano. Yeah. And it kind of blows people's minds. They hear the first album, then they hear this. Yeah. It's like, wow, this is a totally different thing. This isn't what we expected. Yeah. I, um, I feel like the same thing happened with Secret Chiefs 3 in that way. It's a lot of that, too. And yeah. I actually prefer, of their box, of the. I prefer, I think across the board, actually, all of the Masada interpretations of book three than uh, of book one, because it feels more focused to me, because it's groups, like, song to song, you can hear, like the same limitations and boundaries of you know and i'm i'm a record freak i love over you know i love crazy studio records right uh it's i i feel like i can hear sometimes the musicianship a little bit more clearly when it's you know a live session without question yeah i mean it's, it, it's kind of yeah i mean and that makes makes total sense you know it's like it's funny like um I don't know if you're familiar with the album that I did, the Imaginarium album that I did. Um, no. I, I remember, I mean, it's a lot of the same guys from Beat the Donkey, right? It's like... It's a lot of people from a lot of different things. It's yeah. kind of like everybody that I play. It was like 18 musicians on right. it. It's like, uh, obviously, there's a lot of Ciro, but there's four different... Shanir plays bass. Jason Fredicelli plays bass. Uh-huh. My friend Reed Taylor. John Buck plays bass. I mean, there's a lot of different musicians on it. There's Beat the Donkey, All of Banquet. Right. Um, but then there's, you know, there's like a kid's choir on it. There's a gospel choir on it. It's a pretty uh, crazy record. Marshall Allen's on it. You know, it's like... Oh, shit, right. Yeah, Philly legend. Yeah, it's like all over the place, you know. So like... But the thing is, they're all my compositions. But on a lot of things, people can't even... Don't even hear me. I'm not even playing on piano on a lot of it. Right. I'm playing vibes. I'm playing a little accordion. I'm playing synth. I'm playing things that they don't even know what's going right. on. It's like, where's Brian on this album? So I totally get that. Yeah. And then I did it. And part of why I did it is like... because. You know, if you, I had enough albums where I'm just playing piano and people can hear me playing. Yeah. This is sort of my conception of like music of what I want to create. But I ran into the same issue. I'm like, I, you know, the, the album, the music got a great response. I wanted to start playing with it. I managed to shrink the ensemble down to seven was the smallest right. that I could have to even recreate the music. And it's difficult. We can't really tour. We can't play because even with seven, it's too much. Right, right. And I kind of... I like I realized both the the amazingness because for me that was a new experience because almost everything I ever did in the studio was live. I was used to 
let's do what we do on stage and just put it into the studio and re and re and re and record it because mm -hmm. like almost everything i do is improvised to a large extent you know so this was a real this was the first time where i actually even tried to use a studio mm -hmm. and i booked i booked a full week of studio time because i was playing with so many different groups and i brought like different ensembles in every day and by the end of the week, I had like f over 40 hours of music. And then Jesus. I gave myself like this insane like prom that I had no idea. How to work like, your way out of it. I was like, yeah, what are you going to do now? And then what I realized when I listened back to everything, I said, man, this sounds like it's going to be a compilation album uh -huh. of different bands. That's not interesting. And then for a while, it kind of sat and I was in this real kind of conundrum. Then what I started to do, I focused on certain songs uh -huh. and I started to recompose. Mm -hmm. around what was there and i would take improvisations and i would transcribe them and then i would write out the parts and harmonize them and like and then like oh wow this would be amazing if you had, had kids sing this and then you know and it's yeah I sort of have all these ideas and say wow you don't need to make a live album there's all these things that you can do you know i've really started to embrace what the studio process was was the first time for myself that i got into that yeah and, and i loved it but then on the other end of that, I saw how difficult it is well, that if you want thing. to perform. Like if you want to make a, an amazing studio record, ambitious, over-the-top, like the only limit is your imagination kind of thing, um, you will probably make something amazing that will be so daunting, uh, it'll never be performed live, and will cost so much money that you'll never make your money back. And I just had this, like, I woke, yeah. sometimes this happens to me a lot. If I take a nap or even in the middle of the night, I'll wake up and just have a very clear thought. Mm -hmm. And this happened to me just two nights ago. I woke up in the middle of the night and I realized that music, recorded music, is the only, one of the only things like this, which is it doesn't matter because the value of, of music, what people are willing to pay for it, was defined by the cost of a CD or a record. You cannot charge more money for an album because you, the ingredients of the album cost more. If I record right. myself improvising at this Moog synthesizer, yep, yeah, and press it, I will. And you spend forty hours in the studio making this record. We're still going to charge the same amount of money for. It. You know, you br okay. So I, I, it's not like you go to a restaurant and you say, "Why is this dish so expensive?" Oh, it's got truffles. It's got uni. It's you know. See, but 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 I actually that's exactly where I was going to go. Yeah. I would actually, I understand what you're saying, but I think that that's actually the mistake that the artist makes. Uh -huh. And this is like, I think that this is basically a problem with, you know, a difference of like what an art and a product is like like the problem is is when an artist actually tries to make any money on what they do right because the the, the cd is not the thing right of course that is a product it's a gesture right yeah to me though it's like the problem that we've that we've sort of like come across is exactly that where it's like you wouldn't charge the same for like a happy meal as you would for a meal at you know whatever where the chef has like experiences yeah. <laughs> studying with the masters of the world and yeah. you know that's what they charge for there should be no difference in like music yeah, you're not charging for the actual whether yeah i recorded this on just a moog or like right. whether i got an orchestra what you should really be charging for is the experiences and the and that's what you're paying for and the, yeah. you should be yeah which is why the problem is is that it's not because 
you know, the master's product is $10. And the person that learns to sing on YouTube videos that creates like an album is $10 too. Yeah. The public has no frame of reference really you know uh, you know what i'm like I you mean, know what i'm saying within they, that or is that they, not a valid no i mean we're saying the same thing i mean they do to some degree which is if you want let's say you want to go see keith jarrett play a solo concert i don't know why you would want to do that but uh <laughs> yeah <all right. laughs> uh you'll probably pay like 100 bucks to get in right something like this you know yeah. as where you know whoever the viral sensation of the week is on youtube the value of what they do is right there which is like you don't pay for it you watch it on youtube and if they do play a concert who the fuck's in? You know what I mean? Like people do. Like Zorn charges the, the masters charge. Some of them do, um, but again, that's a live concert situation exclusively. So, right. But I, like I'm saying, like maybe what like the problem is is that it's like what are we creating? You know, it's so funny because when Zorn, you know, when Zorn makes a CD, he, you know, I, I know you know this. He loves the CD. Yeah. Like 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 as a as a thing. Yeah. He actually loves it and he puts a lot of thought into everything. Yeah. You know? Like they're beautiful. You know, when he makes it, it's not just putting out a CD. Um, and obviously, you know, he, you know, that's a very he has, you know. He's created a universe in a world where he, you know, where that's possible. But I think for a lot of us, you know, younger artists, it's like a very difficult thing when our music is lumped in with everything else. Yeah. There is no distinction. It's just another $10 product. Well, I mean, that's the thing. That doesn't even exist anymore. It's not even a $10 well, product. Or... It's, it's something for free that sits beside other things that are for free. And then there's really no distinction between shit and quality. And I do realize... Which is why I fight, you know, I, I, I'm i still trying to fight a lot of those battles. Like, I don't... Where do you find yourself fighting them? Well, it's like, you know, one of my issues like with this is, you know, it's like, I, I look at this as like, I know that people want to stream music. You know, I have one album that you can hear on Spotify. Uh -huh. And I did that early on. That was the Imaginarium because it was the first thing that I was putting out under my own name. Right. So I, you uh, want people to hear it. But, that, but that was it. And I and I even struggled with it then. You, you felt like you were compromising by putting it up? Yeah, definitely. Um, you know, I, I don't have a problem with, you know, a format of what how people want to consume the media that they want to consume and obviously people want to stream media now whether it's movies right. tv right. music streaming is what people want right. i get it that's fine my problem obviously is with the exploitation of like that and to the extremes that a company like spotify that spotify goes to to exploit the 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 artists that they're able to build a name and a brand off yeah, of. Yeah. Um and you know, it's and I look, I understand all the arguments. I've gotten into so many of these uh, discussions and in a way they're kinda like exhausting. But part of me thinks that you know, we'd never draw a line in the sand. If we don't make some sort of stand, there's there's going to be no turning back. I mean, I don't think, honestly, at this point, there is any turning back. But and And I would say to you that by having a moral compass to begin with, to question these things is better for your health, even though it can be exhausting. To, to not really understand why things go in a certain direction, why some things are heard and some things aren't heard, what the... I mean, there's no. The, 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 I guess. I, I guess here's like a thing for like me too. Like, um, 
I am in a, I, I am such a strong believer in the, I don't know if there's a name for it, but to me, like, I'm so much about personal relationships and everything in life growing from a very real place. So in other words, you know, I can trace back everything that I'm doing now and all the beautiful, amazing people that I have in my life. It basically came from one or two relationships. Sure. And everything developed from that very organically. Mm -hmm. There's something very beautiful and very trusting about that universe. I would rather build myself as an artist the exact same way. So my music gets disseminated by people that I trust and that I know and that value art and that still want to pay for art. Like I buy my friends art and music. Mm -hmm. That's I support all of it. Um, you know, that that's very, very important to me. And I feel like if if it takes 10, 20, 30 years, I'd rather build from that place than try to fight what I think is a very losing battle. Right. And you're talking specifically about putting your music into the world of the streaming and, services? And, and also trying to play the games that a lot of musicians are playing now to try to get gigs. Well, did you see this thing over the weekend with this guy called Threaten? I, yeah, I've sort of, but I don't, yeah, like, I don't know completely about it, what he, he, he booked. I mean, the long and the short UK, of it is, this, well, like, the, I mean, the, the, the quick version I, of I, it. So I didn't really, yeah, I kind of like tangentially you know, He's it. one of 10 billion crazy artists out there who's trying to get across, trying to, you know, create a, a presence and, and, and put together a professional life as a musician. So he did like a very extreme version of what a lot of people do, which is he created an online presence for himself and then went through what seemed to be some pretty nefarious uh, avenues to create the perception that his music is much more popular than it is. Uh, he paid off these people in Brazil to, you know, put get his YouTube shit up to a million plays and right. fake comments and fake Twitter followers, all this, all this stuff that is the new perception of someone's value. Right. And then he hired some, you know, he created some phony booking agency and a phony record label to, you know, and a phony history for all this shit, you know. Okay. And the guy's, you know, a, a C-grade musician. You right. Know? Uh, and then he booked a Europe tour. He hired a backing band and his phony booking agent sold, you know, they, they said, look, we already sold 200 tickets to the gig, da 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 He showed up every gig he played. There was literally no one at because his entire fan base is fabricated and, right. and not real a hundred percent right you know and i think you know on its own it's you know hilarious and sad at once of course but also it's like a first really clear image if you're paying attention to like this is the actuality of of putting placing this much value on a cyber world that at the end of the day is not real Right. The guy's not a good musician. He yep. doesn't have fans. He doesn't have uh, the goods to get on stage and perform. And it's all fictitious. Right. Well, and to me, that's so much of the world that we live in. And I just, to be honest, I'm tired of it. I can't I'm be a so part of it. I'm tired of it. It's just like, that's why we're not getting anywhere. Because like, pe and people want to believe the lies. That's like more like it. It's easier to like live in that fa 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 fantasy world than to deal with reality. But I have no interest in anything other than dealing with reality, as messy as it is, you know? Yeah. And that's what I said. So, if, like, me, I make... I've learned that, too, you know, and this is, like, I've had really great con conversa conversa conversations with Jay-Z about this. You know, it's like everything is built upon those personal relationships. You know, that's how everything that's, like, meaningful happens. Mm -hmm. You know, I have one person that writes me, that likes my music, 
you know, we have a dialogue. It becomes a real thing. Mm-hmm. Hopefully, they have then one person. You know, I'm I'm very patient in in like that way too because I I have no interest in having a career. My only interest is in being an artist and growing every day of my life. That's it. And if I'm doing that, that's what my life is. Anything else is, you know. It doesn't bear that, and I look. I can say, you know, I I know that that's a difficult thing, especially living in a city like New York, where it's increasingly more difficult. Yeah. Well, and also, for anybody looking for any sense of validation from the outside, I mean, it's it's a bad time right now because you're going to be miserable. Yeah. I mean, but even like you know, we all crave it at certain at varying levels. Yeah. It ain't there. The, no. Right now, more than ever, it it ain't going to be there, unless you are going through the scum fuckery of the Spotify's and the threatens of trying to you know create a and I hate this word and I'm using this word in a very pejorative way a brand. Of course, I mean I, I say that yes. condescendingly. Right? No, I understand. Um, but that's that's what it is, you know. That's that is that is the world, and that's why I have I just can't be part of it. It is yeah. the it is a. It's like a cesspool I don't want to bathe in. You know? That's exactly right. I, I hate that. Because it, it to me, like it's, it's beginning to feel like overwhelming and oppressive. Like, you know, I, as you can see, I, I, we are sitting in a physical manifestation of my desire to be insulated from it. Right. Yes. It's a windowless room with nothing right. but books and records and art, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, it, it's feeling, it's hard for me to be out in the world right now. To be out walking around, you know, I was out yesterday walking the streets, doing errands, and I was like, I gotta get the fuck out of here. I gotta go home. Yeah, it's bad. If you're, you know, if you if you're an, an empathic being, it's very difficult, and there's it, it is, uh, you know, there's almost needs to be like a new spiritual training for those. I think that, you're right. Um, Because it is a lot to absorb. It is a lot for an empathic spirit to absorb the world, like right, like right now. Especially, you know, especially as as an artist. And I, I you know, I, I have this conversation with a lot of my friends. I said, you know, you have to be really careful with how much you take in from the outside world. Because our job is to uplift. We can't allow ourselves to fall below. Because if we do, then it's all there is no hope. I said, and it can be overwhelming. And if you don't have enough skills to be able to absorb that much darkness in the world, it's going to pull you down. And I think it's why, like, I'm very, I'm very cognizant of how much I let in. There's times when I totally detach. There's times, but you can't completely do that either. You need to know, you know, you need to know the reality. But I also don't need to see it all the time because I know enough to know without having to subject myself to certain energies but i know how it how it affects me too Mm -hmm. and how it can how i can be prone to to succumbing to like that Mm -hmm. and i can't allow myself Mm -hmm. you know like um because i know how important our role is now yeah like regardless of the accolade regardless of anything like and i have no illusions of like that i don't have any illusions for um you know what accolades or what praise or money or anything that i may receive in my life i know why i'm fighting the battle that i'm fighting Mm -hmm. and that in itself is enough and i have to always be prepared in that way to do what it is that i do Mm -hmm. and it's a balance because i know people in both extremes like artists like some that 
completely i don't need to name names but people that don't have a clue of what's going on in like the world and people that know way too much and that's paralyzed them yeah it's like smoking cigarettes or something yeah exactly yeah um and i think like you know it is but it's like an amazing thing too you know because it's like it, it will it can create the best art because if you're going to play the game it's going to keep you most like focused because it's hard, it, it, it's a it's a it's a difficult time, and I say this also knowing that this is this is though an eternal state. This is nothing new. Mm-hmm. If we lived a hundred years ago, we'd be having the exact same conversation. Yes, you believe so? Yes, it's 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 a progression. Now all things are speeding up because of intensified. It's just intensified, and just because of like you know the, the the rate of how things can be disseminated so everything moves or appears at least in our limited perception to move faster right but it's it, this is i mean i'm at a point now and see, i guess okay this, this is sort of this, this is the analogy this is the way that i would look at that right if you look at like um you know if you look at like time from almost an eternal sense a hundred or even a thousand years is basically instantaneous like as an improviser like you're aware of this if you're actually in the moment if you think think about what has to happen now you're already late it's already happened to create reality now it's created before right right like an improviser knows that if you want this to happen here this has to happen here yeah you always have to be ahead yeah i look the same way in a macro sense of like the evolution of society and like things Everything we're experiencing now is at least 50 to 100 years already old. Right. We're seeing it now because that's just the nature of how reality works. And because our lives are so short, we have no perception of that because we're only, in, in, it's literally a blink. Yeah. So I actually do believe what I'm saying. Um, but I would say this, like, you know the the rate of this change is increasing mm-hmm. without question we're going to experience um you know in in our lifetime we'll experience much more of a whatever word a de-evolution or whatever you how you want to describe to me which is nothing more than the decay of an empire that's all that we are we show all the signs mm-hmm. of the end <laughs> Mm-hmm. the end of something it's mm-hmm. obviously it doesn't work like everything like the kind of quote art or music or movies that are being produced the things that are valued the the societal issues we have they are all i mean anybody that's studied anything in history sees that it's mm-hmm. it's, it's it's crashing down it's crashing down yeah um it's you know it's it's funny how we were talking about earlier about just like death and you get to a certain point Mm-hmm. in your life and it's sort of maybe a little bit like a like a you know this is a again a micro m- macro view of that and how do you know how do you survive and how do you live in these times um to me like the way that i look, look, look at it is and this is a difficult thing you know i think it's also really hard for us living now to see that we have to do the things that we have to do knowing that we'll never see any results in our lifetime for them. Mm-hmm. Generations pre- like previously, I think, had to live with that. You know, you think about how long it took to build these beautiful cathedrals and things around Hundreds the world. Hundreds of years. Hundreds yeah. of years. Like, yeah. you knew, you know, you were a king or whatever. You knew your grandson might not even see like this, right? right. But you still did it. 
we lose that now because everything is so immediate and we don't see immediate results. We don't even want to partake in it. You're right. What's harder now is to let go of our own life, our own existence, our own ego. And so we need to make choices that are not going to benefit us. And they may not even benefit our children, but maybe they'll keep this shit going, you know, just for a little little bit longer. And that's hard. That's really hard. Yeah. Because everything around us is fighting that. <laughs> everything gets you like to want to be involved in this nowness, mm-hmm. um, you know. And it's I don't mind any of it. It's why I love Lynch. You know, I'm I'm okay to embrace all of this. Mm-hmm. It's okay. It's what it's what we have. It's what it is. Yeah. It's, it's, what it's what it is. It is. <laughs> it's funny. I I've been thinking for the last couple of weeks. I went to. Um, an organ recital at Notre Dame. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it was hands down the best thing I did while I was in France. And I keep thinking about the concert. I keep thinking about the space, the cathedral. What was performed? Can I ask? Uh, so the, the performer was Vincent Dubois, who's now their like, principal organist. Okay. He did Beethoven, Liszt, Rachmaninoff, and I don't remember the fourth piece. I have the program. I can pull oh, it out. Okay. Um, but I've been thinking a lot just about Notre Dame. And it actually took like 400 years to build. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> And it is the great, like, I, I I went there every single day, just sat outside. I've been listening to all this, like, crazy Catholic music because I'm just feeling this, like, response to it. Yeah. Um, but that's a really good point. It was built entirely by people who had no expectation that they would ever see. Right. <laughs> uh, I, mean, I mean, how is that, you know, for, like, really, I mean, it, it's amazing. Like, yeah. in a way, it's really beautiful. Yeah. And really, it's hard for us. It's hard to imagine why well, I'm going to sacrifice like my entire existence, work every day, never all day, it. and never see anything for it. Like, yeah. and it's almost like we can't even conceive of that, right? Like our minds can't even like wrap like around that. It's humbling. Like, really. It's really humbling. It's humbling. It's humbling, really humbling. and it, it it puts things in perspective, you know. Yeah. And this 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 desire to be gratified instantaneously is so childlike, and just not a representation of an evolved person in any way right you know mm-hmm. it's it's childlike and it's it's a cautionary tale well and look you know as as a society and a culture if you want to even use that word we are like you know we are emotionally arrested development you yeah. know that's what we are now it's it's a fear response too it's not. It's oh, not. Oh, it's fear. It's, yeah, it's that it, too. It's, you know, it's. I. I think the it, reality of things is so horrifying right now that it's completely without coincidence that you know what's what's popular now. You know, fucking cash me outside if you can. Like that world of yeah, filth. Yeah. You know, is. Well, you're right. I mean, like, look. I think. I think like the fear-based society. Society is 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 a. Uh, is different than what I would call like emotional arrested like development. I, they're they're both operating like for sure. Um, you know, we live obviously. You know, there's so much power that's able to maintain the power because of the fear that they create mm-hmm. um, and wield over people that are able to feel this fear. But I feel like the more you live in the world, the more you get out in the world, you're not afraid of things, right? Like what they tell you and what they they can show you on a screen or through airwaves is much scarier than the reality that's actually out that's there. That's right. That's absolutely For right. For anybody that travels and actually sees the world, interacts with people around yeah. the world, it's much less scary. Yeah. 
Um, but it, but if you just live on a box, holy shit, you're going to think the world's ending tomorrow. You know, it's like... <laughs> you're right. Oh, it's refreshing. Well, I think we did good, man. All right. I, I'm sorry I spaced on the, the, the appointment today. Oh, no, that's... It man, worked I, out great. I, I, you know, I should have said something, um, but I figured here, here's a guy who's on top of it. <laughs> He's going to be all right. <laughs> so I, I'm glad that it was still cool because I was already you, on, like, on my amazing. way here. But yeah. yeah. Thanks, great. Brian. All right. Thank you. All right. Good shit. Good shit. Good shit. Good shit. That was my conversation with Brian Marcella, the great, the imaginative, the soulful, the hilarious, the um, one of a kind. If you uh, if you're not already down with Brian, then there's something wrong with you. Check him out, Brian Marcella. Go to brianmarcella.com. Go to the 5049 website. Go to the fucking Patreon, please. Patreon.com slash 5049 podcast. Um, and that's it. No show next week. Next week, uh, I'm taking the day off. Uh, so we'll be back in two weeks. All right. That's it. Hope you guys are doing well. And, uh, and hang in there. Bye. Bye.